You guys can turn to Romans 16. Romans 16. So this is the end. Nine months and we have finally reached the end of the book of Romans. It has been a joy to study this book with you guys. I've really uh, been benefited myself by our study of Romans. I feel like I've learned a lot. I hope it has been beneficial to you as well. Now, so you know where we're headed. Um, we finish up Romans this Sunday. Next Sunday, we will begin into the spiritual disciplines. That'll be our study this summer, the spiritual disciplines. And then in the fall, we're going to do James together. I'm really excited about James. It's a perfect complement to Romans. If you've studied them, you know they fit together really well. So James this fall. Now, uh, as the elders mentioned last week, uh, they have uh, commissioned or more like ordered Brian and I to take some time out of the pulpit uh, to spend uh, some of it in rest, some of it in, in preparation for the fall. So this summer, you won't see me up here a whole lot. I'd ask you to pray for me as we get James ready to, to preach this fall. Um, they did also uh, order that we spend some more time with our families. The year gets busy, and, and I'm really excited to take some weekends and spend them with my family because my kids are, are growing up faster than I realized. Luke and Grace are now two and a half. Uh, these are pictures from this week, my two and a half year olds. Gracie is already building stuff, and Luke is already driving. And I, I didn't really expect that to happen so fast. I don't know where the time has gone that my boys are already driving. It, it seems like just yesterday, two and a half years ago, just yesterday, we were rushing into the hospital to meet these two kiddos. Now, as many of you know, on that day when Luke and Gracie were born, we had a pretty serious medical scare. We, we went in for Julie's 35-week checkup, no big deal, go to the doctor, everything seems fine. They run some tests, and they discovered that her organs were shutting down. Um, and so they rushed her into surgery, took the kids out, sent her to ICU. It was a really serious day, a pretty scary time for us. Um, but what still stuns me, two and a half years later, I, I can remember it like, like yesterday, still stuns me, is how healthy Julie looked when we walked in the doctor's office. She, she looked like the picture of a perfect pregnancy, a healthy pregnancy. Now, she had two kids crammed in there, so she wasn't comfortable, but she looked healthy. To all outward appearances, she looked like the picture of health. To me, to the nurses, to the doctor, she seemed so healthy until they ran those tests and figured out that on the inside, she was in serious trouble. What I learned on that day is that outward appearance is not a good gauge of health. Appearances can be deceiving. We can look healthy but be dying on the inside. Outward appearance is no gauge of health, not for people, not for churches either, which is where our passage is going to go this morning. You cannot judge the health of a church based on its outward appearance. The church can look great can have lots of people showing up on a Sunday morning, meeting in a big, beautiful building with a charismatic preacher, a top-of-the-line band, and a million programs for the kids, yet on the inside be dead, be dying. There can be uh, no spiritual growth going on, no impact for the Lord. Even though it looks great on the outside, it can be weak and unhealthy on the inside. So outward appearance is no gauge of health. So what is? How do you tell if a church is healthy? What are the, the marks or characteristics of a healthy church? Now, that's not just a question for our elders or our staff. That's a question for all of us. This is your church. I'm assuming you're here this morning because you've chosen to make Grace Bible Church your home, your, your church, your family. You are invested here. This is your home. You give your time here, your money here, your care here, your love here. This is your home. And so you have a right to know, is your church healthy? 
And, and even more importantly, you have a right to know what can you do as an individual to contribute to the health of your church? What do you need to do to make Grace Bible Church, your church, healthy? That's what Paul's going to lay out for us this morning. In Romans 16, he's going to give us two marks or, or two characteristics of a healthy church. Two characteristics of a healthy church. Um, I want you to, to jump in with me. Let's look at chapter 16. Um, look just right at the beginning, right at, at verse 1. Look down. Just spend a moment scanning over the, the first part of Romans 16. Just, just kind of scan down over those first few verses. What do you see in the first half of Romans 16? What is the first half of Romans 16? It's a big list. Big list of names. Lots of names. Paul names 26 individuals in the first 16 verses. And then a a bunch of groups outside of those individuals. So it's a big list of names. And and I'll be honest with you, when I get to a big list of names in Scripture, I I tend to tune out. That's, That's my tendency. I get to those big lists like Genesis 10, Ham beget this guy, beget this guy, beget this. I get to those big lists of names and I tune out because I don't feel like there's anything significant there. Nothing relevant to my life in a list of names. I look at, at verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogus and Julius. You read all these names and you just think, what in the world is going on? Why am I paying attention to this? Why am I reading this? It seems boring. It seems insignificant. But I would remind us, it, it is a part of Scripture. It is God's word. Even the lists of the Bible are God's word. And as such, they have something to teach us. They are not there by accident. They are not there as filler material to make up time. They're there as God's word. They have something to teach us, and this list does as well. Actually, this list in Romans 16 has a lot to teach us. This is is no mere list of names. I want us to just observe a few things from this list. Look with me starting in verse 1. Let's just read the first seven verses to get a sense of what Paul is doing as he lists all of these people. He starts in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant of the church which is at Kentria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ Jesus before me. And then on and on, Paul goes mentioning, naming, encouraging all of these 26 people. I want us to observe a few things from this list. First of all, as we, as we go through it, we meet a wide variety of people. Wide variety of people that made up the church in Rome. It's interesting. It's, it's kind of cool. In the ancient world, um, your name said something about you. Your name revealed your, your ethnicity, your background, your socioeconomic status, typically your level of education. Your name denoted a lot about you. And so there's a lot we can tell from these people's names. We can tell that we have a mixed racial group. We have Jews and multiple types of Gentiles, meaning races from everywhere made up the church in Rome. We have both men and women. And it's, it's interesting in this list, actually there's nine women mentioned and five of them are highly commended. And actually the first two 
two people in the list, Prisca uh, and uh, Prisca and Phoebe are both women. So uh, we could tell women played a very significant role in the church in Rome, had a major part to play there. Uh, third, we can tell that there were slaves, former slaves, and wealthy patrons who made up the church in Rome. Their names can tell you whether they are a slave or whether they are incredibly rich. The church in Rome had a wide variety of people that called it home, very diverse group of people. A diverse group of people that actually met in at least three home churches. I don't know if you noticed that, but when Paul is is greeting Prisca and Aquila at the beginning of verse 5, he says, also greet the church that is in their house. He'll do that two more times. He'll mention house churches. It gives us a, a fascinating picture of the church in the ancient world. This was not church. No one did this. No no one could afford a building like this. The government were the only people who owned buildings like this. And so you met in someone's home. And you met in their home until you grew too big and then you divided into two homes and then three homes and four homes and and so on and so forth. And, And in Rome, there were at least three home churches, probably more, probably at least five in the church in Rome at this time. And so this was not church in the early ancient world. It was actually more like for those of you who are in a home church. That's what church looked like in Paul's day. So all of these home churches, and in these home churches, uh, there, there is something that Paul does as he greets these people in these home churches. It's the third observation. It's by far the most important from this list. You want to notice how Paul commends these people. What does he say about these people? He says a lot of things, but more often than anything else, nine times as you go through this list, Paul commends someone for their service. That is hands down by far the most frequent thing Paul recognizes about these believers in the church in Rome is their selfless service to others. I'll give you some examples. Phoebe, she is commended for being a servant, for being a helper of many. Prisca and Aquila are commended for being fellow workers. For my life, they risk their own necks. He commends their, their sacrifice. Mary worked hard. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. On and on, Paul commends the believers of this church, for their selfless service. That's what Paul cared most about when it came to the church in Rome. He could care less about their building or their budget or their popularity or their speakers or whoever that might be. What he cared about was their service, that they served others selflessly. That's what Paul commended above all else, and that gives us our first mark of a healthy church. First mark of a healthy church, it is full of servants. In a healthy church, the pews are full of selfless servants. Servants who serve the the needs of the body, they serve other believers, and they serve the community, the world at large. That's what marks a healthy church, a church that serves. That's what God commends through Paul in this list. He commends their service. Now, we should note how different that is than how our world thinks. What does our world commend in someone? What does our world recognize and praise about you? Well, intelligence. If if you're intelligence and you you get a scholarship, you get credentials, you get awards for your intelligence. And and in our world, it commends wealth. If you're wealthy, you make it on the Forbes list of richest people and you get access to the best hotels and best restaurants and you get time with the people in power. Our world commends wealth and beauty. If you're beautiful, our world takes notice and praises you, rewards you for that, gives you access based on your beauty. And talent, if you can sing well or act or speak or lead or do something with great talent, our world takes notice of that and commends that. 
Intelligence, wealth, beauty, and talent. That's what our world commends. But as we look at Romans 16, we should realize God could really care less about that. God is really not impressed with any of those four things. Intelligence, wealth, beauty, talent. God could care less. He doesn't need that. It's not impressive to him. What is impressive to God? Service. Service. When you selflessly serve someone else, that's what God praises. That's what he recognizes and commends is our service. So uh, when you go mow the lawn of the neighbor who is sick, that's what God praises. Not your IQ, not your money, not your talents. It's that you mowed the guy's lawn. When you sacrifice your eating out money to give it to the family who lost their job, who can't pay their bills, that's what God commends. That's what he praises. When you sacrifice your time to work in the nursery on a Sunday morning, that's what God commends. That's what he recognizes. When you give up your time this week, like many of you are going to do, to help with backyard Bible clubs, sharing the gospel with kids in 95 degree heat, that's what God commends. Not your intelligence, not your talent. It's that you would selflessly serve in sweltering heat to care for these kids. That's what God praises. Not intelligence, wealth, talent, beauty. It's your service. That you selflessly serve others. That's what God praises and commends. That's what he loves because that's what makes his church healthy. If a church is full of selfless servants, that church will be healthy. It will be strong. But if it's not... If the church is not full of selfless servants, then it's a church that will die, that will eventually fade away. There was a pastor who was approached by a man who wanted to join his church. But the man said, I have a very busy schedule. I I can't be called on for any service. I just won't be available for special projects or to help with setting up chairs or things like that. I just want to sit through Sunday worship and then go on about my business. Pastor thought about that for a moment. And then he replied, I believe you're at the wrong church. The the church you're looking for is three blocks down the street on the right. Man followed the preacher's directions and soon came to an abandoned, boarded up, closed down church because that's what a church becomes when it's not full of servants. When everybody's coming just to meet their own needs, just to, to get their desires met, then that church will die. That church will be ineffective. The health of a church is measured by the number of people in service who are selflessly serving other believers and the world at large. That's what makes a church healthy and strong. So let me give you a couple practical steps to apply this. What can you be doing to make Grace Bible Church a healthy church? First, find a place to serve. Find a place to serve. That might be here at the church. Maybe God is calling you to serve in a particular ministry here at the church. There's lots of opportunities for that. We always have need in in children's ministry and in youth ministry. If you want to serve there, just go to our website. There's contact information under both of those ministries, children's or youth. You could serve there. You could serve on on Sunday mornings with our, our greeters, people who welcome people at the door, with the information desk. Lots of opportunities on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to volunteer on a Sunday morning, contact me, and I'll put you in touch with the people in charge of those ministries. If you feel called and and equipped to lead a small group, contact me. I'll get you an application and get you in touch with somebody who can interview you and get you in our leadership pipeline. Lots of opportunities to to serve here at the church. If you feel called to serve outside of the church, lots of great opportunities there too. If you go to our website and go to Ministries Community Outreach, 
Check out the community outreach part of our website. We list a bunch of awesome organizations in this community that you can give time to, uh, whether you are 80 years old or 18 years old. They, they will take your time. Even a few hours a month, if that's all that you can give, some great organizations like SOS Ministries, uh, the Church Pantry, Aguiland Pregnancy Outreach, Hope Pregnancy Center, Youth Impact, lots of great organizations in our community that you can give time to. Um, and, and finally, maybe you feel called to just kind of serve anonymously outside of any official ministry. Um, maybe you just feel called to go uh, mow the lawn of that single mom next door um, or change the oil of the international student who, who doesn't have money to, to do that um, or give some free babysitting to the family that just had a newborn or, or give financially to that couple that lost their job. If you have an opportunity like that, you don't need to contact me. Just go do it. I don't need to know about it. Just do it. Go serve the people next to you. Serve your neighbors. Serve the town. Serve this community. Selflessly serve others because that's what makes Grace Bible Church strong. That's what makes us healthy. When we're all sacrificially serving, that's what God praises and commends about your life when you serve others. So find a place to serve. That's the first step. And then second, when you notice someone else here at Grace Bible Church selflessly serving, recognize that. Commend that service. Uh, Harvard Business Review a few years ago did a study. They wanted to find out, um, other than money, other than giving people additional money, what is the best way for a boss to motivate his or her employees? In other words, what is the most powerful non-monetary motivation you can give a person? And hands down, number one on the list was recognition. If you want to motivate somebody, recognize what they do. That's not a surprise because that's how God designed human beings. God designed us to thrive on encouragement. When you encourage someone, it motivates them and inspires them to go even further. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing. Romans 16. He's taking a whole chapter of one of the most important documents ever written in the history of the human race, and he's dedicating it to a list of names. Why? Because he knows this encouragement will inspire the church in Rome to go even further, to do even more in service to one another and to the world. Our encouragement inspires greater feats of service In the future. So when you see a brother or sister in Christ serving selflessly, whether here at the church or in the community, take time to stop and thank them. Take time to encourage them, just like Paul does in Romans 16. That will inspire them to go even further in service, and it will build a community here at Grace that that rewards and encourages service. Let us encourage service. The world is busy encouraging and commending wealth, intelligence, beauty, talent. Let us commend service. Let's build an environment that inspires service among one another. So the first mark of a healthy church is the church full of selfless servants. If the pews are full of servants, then we thrive. We'll be around for decades. We'll be strong. We'll make a major impact on the world if we're servants. That's the first mark of a healthy church. Second mark of a healthy church that Paul gives us starts with a warning. Look with me at verse 17. In the midst of a warning, Paul's going to give us the second mark of a healthy church. Verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. 
For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the port of your obedience has reached you all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In these verses, Paul is warning the church in Rome about false teachers. False teachers, and and we know a few things about them. Paul reveals a little bit about them to us. He tells us, uh, first of all, these are men, um, men who would come into a church in the ancient world and, and would claim to have authority as teachers. We have something to teach you. And then they would teach the church something that contradicted that which Jesus and the apostles taught. So so they're teaching something that contradicts with the the basic, the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Why are they doing that? What's their goal? Well, like any false teachers, their goal is to build a following. They want power. They want influence. They want to lead the church out from under the authority of the apostles and into their own sphere of influence so they'll feel good about themselves. So false teachers are leading people astray to build a following. Now, beyond that, we don't know much. We don't know exactly who these guys are. We don't even know exactly what they were teaching. Paul doesn't identify it here. There were lots of varieties of false teaching in the ancient world, just as there are today. We don't know for sure. My best guess is that Paul is talking here about a particular variety of false teachers called Judaizers. Judaizers, these are men who entered the church, the ancient church, and taught believers that Jesus is a great start. You got Jesus. Great, man, that is, you are off to a great start, but Jesus is not enough. Jesus is a good start, but if you really want to be saved, you also must obey the Mosaic law and be circumcised. In other words, Judaizers taught believers that you must become Jews. If you want to be saved, Jesus is a good first step. Now become a Jew. Now, Paul had run into the Judaizers a lot. All through the uh, course of his ministry, he is confronting these guys. He wrote whole books about these guys, like the book of Galatians. Galatians is written to combat Judaizers. And in, in Galatians, what we learn about what's happened is that the church in Galatia started strong. Paul founded that church. It started strong, but then these Judaizers entered, and they corrupted the gospel. They led the church away from the simplicity of the gospel, salvation through faith alone, and they taught them that you must become Jews. And Paul did not take that lightly, did he? Paul was uh, really frustrated by that false teaching. He was really angry by what the Judaizers were doing. So angry, in fact, that in in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Accursed. Now, you you may not know that that word accursed. It sounds kinder in English than actually is in Greek. Literally, it means, may they be damned. That's what Paul wants for these men. May they be damned because of what they have done. Man, you don't, you don't get much more fiery than that. What in the world calls forth such strong language from Paul? Why is he so angry at these guys? Why does he hate what they're doing so much? Well, he tells us why in Romans 16, because this false teaching, this corruption of the gospel, what does it do? Well, first of all, it divides believers. Talks about that in verse 17. It causes dissensions among us. When somebody comes in and teaches what is false, it divides a church. It did it in Paul's day all the time. These Judaizers would come in, they would teach their stuff, and the result would be that there would be a fracture in the church between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are second string. Jews, you're varsity. So it would create a fracture in the church over their false teaching. The same thing happens today. 
When a church is infiltrated by false teaching, it usually is at some point going to split. A common example, someone comes in and begins to teach that the Bible is not completely true, completely reliable. Someone teaches that there are errors in the Bible. You, You cannot depend upon it. In the course of teaching that, invariably, some people in the church will agree and some will not. And the result will be a fracture. The church will be divided. That usually accompanies false teaching. Um, but that's not the most serious thing that, that bothers Paul about false teaching. The most serious thing he mentions in verse 18, false teaching deceives. It deceives the hearts of the unsuspecting there at the end of verse 18. Literally, it deceives the hearts of the naive. The naive are, are believers. They've accepted the gospel, but they're not mature yet. They don't know truth really well yet. They can't spot false teaching. They can't spot error. They simply passively receive everything that they hear uncritically. They are deceived by false teachers and led astray. It causes pain and suffering in that person's life. It it hurts them. It it even destroys their life. Now, they they can't lose their salvation. You you can't lose it, but you can uh, experience great pain and suffering at the hands of a false teacher. And I'll give you an example that's happened far too often in our country. One of the most common forms of false teaching out there is, is what we like to call prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel are those men and women, often on TV, who teach that God wants Christians to be wealthy and healthy. Wealthy and healthy. That's God's plan for your life. And you can have that if you will just send me $1,000. Just give me $1,000 and I promise you that God will pour forth the wealth of heaven upon you. Because of that false teaching, so many believers have compromised their life savings. They've given up, sacrificed their savings to pay for the vacation homes of those heretics. That's what false teaching does. It deceives the hearts of the naive among us and leads them into destruction, into pain, into suffering. That's why Paul literally calls hell down on these men. Because false teaching divides and deceives. It destroys. Churches can be destroyed by false teaching. It's really serious. Grace Bible Church is to be healthy and strong. We must stay true to the truth. We must cling to the truth. And that's the second mark of a healthy church. Not only must we be full of selfless servants, but we must be devoted to the truth. We must be devoted and cling to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We must resist false teaching because false teaching will divide us, deceive us, destroy us. We must cling to that which is true. We must not waver from the essential truths of Scripture. That's the second mark of a healthy church. It clings to the essential truths of God's Word. Now, how do we do that? Practically speaking, how do you as an individual and how do we as a church body, how do we devote ourselves and cling to these essential truths of God's Scripture? Let me give you a, a few practical steps, three steps you need to take as an individual and we need to take as a church to cling to the essentials. First, we've got to figure out what they are. What's essential? There's a lot of stuff involved in Christianity. A lot of ideas and beliefs that fit within the umbrella of Christianity. Some of it is essential, some of it is not. So we have to figure out what are the essential items of our faith. Paul reveals two of them to us at the end of the chapter. Look with me, very end of the book, this beautiful doxology or or song of worship, right at the end of the book, starting in verse 25. 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scripture of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Paul takes us back to something he has talked about often throughout the book of Romans. Right there at the top of the list of essentials is God and gospel. One God, one gospel. There is one eternal, all-wise God to whom our allegiance is due. Not lots of gods that you take your pick from, one God. And that one God has revealed one gospel, one way in which you can receive eternal life, one way to be forgiven of your sins. That one gospel revealed by that one God is all about Jesus Christ, about what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection for us. That is an absolute essential. This this good news that we proclaim, that, that Jesus died for your sins and then rose from the dead, And you can have eternal life simply by faith, simply by believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's essential. The Bible allows no compromise on that. The gospel is absolutely essential. Let me give you some other examples. Another essential, the truthfulness of scripture. Talked about that briefly a moment ago. In the history of the church, really the the first essential, the first item on on the list is scripture, your, your belief about scripture, that this is God's word, that it is completely true, completely authoritative. That is an essential because everything else is built upon it. This is the book that tells us about God, that tells us about the gospel, that tells us everything else about Christianity. If you don't stick to the truth about this book, that it is God's absolutely true word, then every other belief in Christianity falls. That's what's happened to so many churches and denominations in America. They, they compromise on scripture. They compromise on the belief that it is absolutely true. Once they make that compromise, all the other dominoes end up falling. We've got a hold of this, that it's God's absolutely true and authoritative word. That's an essential. Uh, another one, what's coming in the future. It's essential that we believe that Jesus is coming back essential that we believe that he will bring all believers to spend eternity with him in heaven and it's essential that we believe that there is a real place called hell for those who have rejected Jesus his return heaven hell those are essentials of eschatology essential beliefs of the end times all believers should agree on those things but the rest of the details of eschatology like, like the rapture and, and details about the tribulation and the millennial kingdom and all that good stuff I would say that's non-essential That's not as essential as the other stuff. Now, we have some pretty strong beliefs about those things here at Grace Bible Church, but the passages about all of those eschatology details are not real clear. They're they're pretty hard to figure out. I still wrestle with them. I'm still struggling with them. And so there's other believers who have different views than we do. And and to them, we offer love and charity. We'll, We'll work with you if you don't agree with us about the rapture, the tribulation. That's not essential. So long as you agree on the essential things, that's what counts. So eschatology details, not essential. Another non-essential, tongues. That often becomes an essential at a lot of churches. We shouldn't let it be. These sign gifts like speaking in tongues, that's speaking in a foreign language you don't know. It it happened in Acts chapter 2. Is that happening today? Should we expect God to give some of you the gift of tongues? Well, I think that's a non-essential issue. Because scripture doesn't really tell us clearly. There's no verse you can go to telling you whether God still gives the gift of tongues today. And so uh, come to your opinion, come to your view, and then show charity to those who disagree. Because that's a non-essential. 
So figure out what the essentials are, separate them from the non-essentials. If you want to know what does Grace Bible Church think qualifies as essential, I would point you to our doctrinal statement. Just go to our website. Go to our website, go to about, about grace, and then who we are and doctrine, and you'll get this doctrinal statement. This lists out what we believe. It's not very long. Um, Almost everything on that list is essential. There's a few things about end times and ordinance of the church that are not essential, but most of it, especially the first part on scripture, Trinity, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, salvation, those are essential items. If you want to know what we hold as essential, just go to our doctrinal statement and you'll see it there. So step number one in clinging to the essentials is figuring out what are the essentials. Once you figure out what the essentials are, step number two, learn them. Learn them well. Know the essentials of the faith by heart. You need to know them forwards and backwards so that you can spot error when it approaches. If if you wanted to train somebody how to spot a counterfeit bill, a, a forged bill, These are actually two bills. One is real, one is not. One's counterfeit. Really, actually, a very good counterfeit. How would you train somebody to figure out which one is real and which one is fake? Well, you don't have them study the fakes. There's too many forgeries out there, and they're always changing. It's a waste of time to study the forgeries, the counterfeits. What you do is spend all your time studying the real McCoy, studying the real bills. That's how they train treasury officials, police officers, bank tellers. They make them spend days and days studying, holding, touching, feeling the real bills. They spend all this time with the real thing so that when someone hands them a counterfeit, they'll know it intuitively. There's a story I was reading about a bank teller who, who had somebody actually try to pass off on them a counterfeit bill. And she said, you know, as soon as I touched it, I knew. I could just tell it was a really good counterfeit. So I could not tell what was wrong about it, but I just knew because I had spent, I literally handled thousands of bills in the previous few days, real bills. And so I could spot the fake. That's how it works. If you want to spot the fake, you got to spend time with the real McCoy. You got to study what is true. You need to study the essentials so deeply, so fully that when you are exposed to counterfeit, you can recognize it immediately. And to do that, I would point you to our essentials packet. That's why it's there. This is our most important Bible study at Grace Bible Church. Most important thing, we want everybody to go through essentials. There's no more important thing we could put in front of you than this 10-lesson study on the essentials of the Christian faith. Just go to our website, downloads Bible Studies Essentials. It's yours for free. We're here in the summer. Summer's a great time to have something to read. Just grab this, read it, go through it. Many of you have done that before, but if you haven't, go through the essentials and make sure you know it. Learn those verses, study that material, know it like the back of your hand. Spend time with it so that you'll know it so well that when false teaching comes across you, you, you'll you'll just know it. You'll, You'll know the false teaching, you'll know the error because you know the truth so well. Learn the essentials really well. Learn it so well that you can spot what is false. Third step, final step, after determining what the essentials are and learning them by heart, Put up your guard whenever anything contradicts that. Put up your guard. Beware of those things that contradict the essentials. When you're podcasting a preacher and you hear him say something that seems a little off, doesn't quite seem right, doesn't seem to line up with with not some minor thing, but some major thing in the Christian faith, put up your guard. Maybe turn that podcast off. Don't give that guy access to to your heart and to your mind if he's teaching you something that is false that does not line up with the essentials of the Christian faith. 
We have to be careful. Paul tells us towards the end of the passage that we read a little while ago, end of verse nine, I want you to be wise in what is good. He wants us to know the essential truths of the Christian faith forwards and backwards, but I want you to be innocent in what is evil. In other words, Paul's saying, don't hang out in false teaching. Don't spend a lot of time there. If you come across something that is heretical, don't hang out in it. Don't spend time in it because it will influence you. Now, there are times when we have to study error so that we can respond to it. I had to do a lot of that at seminary, read a lot of things that were in error. But whenever I did, I put my guard up. I was very careful. If I'm reading a a very liberal theologian who denies the truthfulness of scripture, I'm not going to read his book devotionally. I'm not going to give that guy access to my heart and to my emotions because he's a false teacher. Whether he'll admit it or not, his goal is to lead me astray from the church, to lead me astray from the truth. I have to be careful. I have to have my guard up. So as you're going through this life, having learned the essentials really well, whenever you spot something that contradicts it, raise your guard. Be careful. Don't let false teaching take up residence in your heart because it will divide and destroy. That's what it does. It deceives and destroys us. Be very careful. Be on your guard. Let me just point out a a few places where I think we particularly need to put our guard up these days. Three places that I think are particularly relevant to this. First, We always need to have our guard up when we're being entertained. If you're being entertained, uh, don't be passive in your entertainment. Put your guard up. Now, I I think I'll give one example. TV shows. I think most of us know we should not watch TV shows that contain a lot of immoral stuff. That's that's just not good for you. Don't go there. But uh, there's a lot of TV shows that don't have a lot of immoral stuff. They're entertaining. They're morally acceptable. So you can participate in them and watch them. But as you do, be careful. Be careful and have your guard up because you need to realize it's about a 99% chance that the person who wrote that TV show does not see truth as you do. They don't believe in the Bible. They're not believers. They're not Christians. They're not following Christ. And so they are presenting life and reality to you through a secular mindset, through a false mindset. If you, if you just passively receive that and spend too much time in that, it will influence you in negative ways, even though it is a morally acceptable TV show. Be careful. Put up your guard anytime you're being entertained. You can watch it, have fun watching it, but be careful. Don't let it influence you. That's the first place to watch when we're being entertained. Second place, I mentioned it earlier, when we're podcasting. A lot lot of us do that now. It's really cool what technology does for you. You can go for a jog and listen to a, a preacher on the other side of the world. That's great. Lots of us do that, listen to teachers or speakers or preachers for edification and encouragement. That's a great thing. But whenever you're listening to someone else, put your guard up. Be careful. Listen to what they're saying. Compare it to scripture. Be careful because I'll warn you, I'll give you a hint, a lot of the most popular podcasting preachers in America right now are heretics. An example is the prosperity gospel. They're gonna be the top of the hits when you look at the most popular podcasts and they're teaching a lie. So be careful as you podcast. Put your guard up. It's a good thing, but be careful. Third related place, put your guard up when you're reading a Christian book. I think most of us know to put our guard up when we're reading a non-Christian book. We know it's non-Christian. You need to watch out for that. Christian books, though, just because it says it's a Christian book doesn't mean it is. Anybody can put any title they want on a book. It doesn't make it Christian. And just because you bought it from a Christian bookstore does not make it Christian. Doesn't mean it's God's truth if it's on the Christian shelf at Barnes & Noble. 
When you're reading a Christian book, be careful. Lots of great Christian books out there. Many old and new ones that have had a great impact on my life, that have contributed to my discipleship. Lots of great Christian books out there, but there's a lot that aren't. A lot that are full of heresy. And if you're not careful, if you don't put your guard up, if you don't take that book and compare it to Scripture and weigh it against the essentials of the faith, it can lead you astray. So be careful. Have your guard up. When you spot something that is in error, beware. Avoid false teaching. Instead, delve deeply into the essentials. Make sure you know it forwards and backwards. So is Grace Bible Church healthy? Well, we're healthy if these two things are true about us. These are the marks of a healthy church. Not budget, not attendance, not building, not all the outward things. It's these two inward things. Are the pews full of selfless servants? Are we serving one another sacrificially? If so, then Grace Bible Church is healthy. Then it is strong and it will last. Second, are we clinging to truth? Are we devoted to the essential truths of Scripture? Not just the elders, not just the staff, but every one of us as a body. Are we each deep in the essentials of the Christian faith? Do we cling to that which is true? If so, then we will be a healthy church. We'll be a strong church. I encourage each of you, I don't know what part of this message, of this passage really connected with you, but I think for all of us, there's some application to walk away with here, whether it's to go deeper in your service towards this church or this community, or whether to go deeper in the essentials of the faith. Take this summer as an opportunity to get healthy, or if you're already healthy, to grow even more healthy. Help us be a healthy family, a healthy church by each of us pursuing service and pursuing truth, loving people and loving truth. That's how you have a healthy church. Let's go to the Lord and pray for his help. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing this truth to us. Thank you that even here at the end of the book in a big list of names, you reveal truth to us, you reveal life to us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. And we thank you, Father, for what you have laid out for us in this particular passage, Father. We thank you um, that you have sent your son to die for us, to make a way for us to have eternal life with you through faith alone. Um, Father, we thank you that Jesus modeled for us the way of service, that he came uh, not to be served, but to serve us. Father, please help us to follow his example. Lord, we believe Jesus' word when he says, the first among you shall be servant of all. What you reward, what you commend, what you praise is our service. And so help each of us, Father, to serve one another and serve this community well. I pray, Father, that you would convict us when we are selfish and that you would empower us to be selfless. Please, Lord, help us each to see opportunities this week to serve other people. And I pray that you would work among us as a community, as a body, so that when people of this community look into Grace Bible Church, they would be overwhelmed by how much we serve, that that would be what's true of us as a church, that we selflessly serve others. And Father, second, we pray that you would help us to be a church that clings to the truth, that's devoted to your truth, that loves your truth, Father. Help us to to each individually dig deeply into your word to really learn the essentials well. I pray if there's anyone here who has not gone through the essentials, that you would um, help them this summer to really devote themselves to that material and to learn it forwards and backwards so that they would not be naive of the truth, but that they would really know the truth 
so that when error comes their way, they would be able to spot it and turn from it. I pray, Father, that you would protect our church. We know that Satan desires to make us ineffective. He desires to lead us astray and to sow false teaching here. And so we pray, Father, help every one of us to cling to the truth devotedly. Protect us from the lies of the evil one. Help us to walk faithfully with you. We pray that Grace Bible Church would be healthy now. We pray that it would be healthy for years and decades to come, Lord. We know that you can do that, that you can make us healthy. We pray that you would do that for each of us individually and for us as a family. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.